Good morning, everybody. Uh, good morning to everybody upstairs in the Well Cafe. If we haven't met before, my name is Johnny. I serve as one of the pastors here at First Methodist Mansfield, and I have the distinct pleasure and honor of serving as the lead pastor for this worship community that we call the Well. Uh, if you have come for the first time, or maybe first time in a long time today, you have come near the end of a very long journey that we have been on. It's the final stretch of a series that we've been on since the beginning of Lent, uh, back in February, if you can remember back that long. Uh, that we have been in preparation. That's what Lent is. It's preparation for Easter, right? Uh, a celebration that we have at that time. And this series that we've been on is called Meeting Jesus Again for the First Time, where we have deeply immersed ourselves in the Gospel of Luke, the story that Luke tells about the life ministry, life and ministry of Jesus, his death and his resurrection. And so for some of you, this is your very first time to encounter this Jesus and for probably many of you, this isn't your first. You've encountered Jesus on many occasions. But the hope is that as we have journeyed through Luke's telling of this story, that we have found some things about Jesus that have reminded us of things that we have long forgotten. Or that maybe we are surprised by some of the ways Jesus encounters uh, people like us and the world. But all throughout that, the hope is that we are coming to a deeper and more full understanding of who this Jesus actually is, who he is for us, who he is for the world, and who he has called us to be. So today, predictably, we are going to be talking about entrances. And entrances tell you a lot about the character of a person, right? The way somebody enters a room you can tell whether or not you're going to like them or not, right? They come in, you're like, um, I don't like the way that person walks. Like, you know, <laughs> that's an arrogant walk. I don't like that. Or they come in, they're like, that person's clumsy. Don't sit next to that person. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, you can tell they're about to spill their coffee all over you. If you think about it, entrances tell us a lot. They, we can infer a lot by the way uh, an entrance happens. Think of some of the classic character entrances from television and film, right? Uh, you can think one, here's one, uh, it's raining, you're in a Jeep that has stopped working, and it's quiet, and you notice this cup of water, and it starts vibrating, <laughs> right? And you're like, hey, this whole movie's been talking about this T-Rex thing that I've been waiting to see, right? And then right there, we have a picture of it. I don't know if we have a picture. Yeah. Right then, just, right? Like, here's T-Rex. Now, you kind of knew T-Rex was going to be scary. But, like, that moment, it sets up this entrance, right, that you've been anticipating from the get-go. You've seen all these other dinosaurs. And this is what you've been waiting to see, the majestic and ferocious and terrifying T-Rex. Or maybe, let's do something a little less scary. Um, maybe you watch sitcoms, right? You're a fan of sitcoms that really don't mean anything whatsoever. And you can think of a character that makes you nervous because they seem constantly nervous. And the way they bust through a door, right? And their heads are they're always shaking. You, you can picture Kramer immediately from Seinfeld, right? As he just comes in, you just know who Kramer is by the way he enters a room, or one of my very favorite characters of all time, Indiana Jones. Yeah, right? Like, you know, uh, it, it's a deep, dark jungle, and, or in a, in a cave, right, at this temple, and then into the light steps in all of his khaki glory, Indiana Jones, right? You know, you see later on that he's a professor, but you know, because of the way he enters into to your, to view, the way he enters the movie, you know he's an adventurer, right, at heart, 
Teaching is just something he does, but this is who he is. Maybe if you grew up loving the 90s Bulls and Pippin and Jordan, and you knew the second that music started and the lights would dim on the TV if you were watching in that arena and the lasers would start showing at center court, you knew it was time. You were going to watch magic happen. And maybe last entrance, and predictably so because it's me, Darth Vader. Maybe the most iconic and recognizable figure in all of film enters into our lives on the Tantive Four, right? And it's a, he's surrounded by white stormtroopers, white walls, bodies strewn on the ground, and this ominous figure that just strolls in. And you knew that this dude was bad news the second he came in to our site. Everything from the lighting to the, the situation, the costuming, uh, the music, the mannerisms of the people as they enter into a scene, as they enter the frame, tell us something. They work together to paint this picture for us that we immediately feel sort of in our bones intuitively and starts to answer some of the questions for us that we have about the characters of the, of the film or the show or the play. Are they good or are they bad? Are they cool and collected and calm, or are they eccentric and kind of nervous? Are they important, or are they secondary, rather indistinct, maybe? But from that moment, whether or not you know how the story goes, whether you know, you know how it ends, whether or not you know exactly the role the character is going to play in the plot, you have a sense of who they are. And so today, as we read uh, this scripture, a, a scene that is painted uh, in all four of the Gospels, as we read it, we realize that this is a story of entrances. That's supposed to tell us something about the person entering. So we're going to use our imaginations for a little bit. I know for some of us, that's like cranking up the old machine in there. Like, we're going to use our imaginations for a minute. So if that means you've got to close your eyes so you're not distracted or whatever, but just imagine this with me, that we are in Jerusalem around the year 30. It's probably springtime, and we are just inside the gates of the city, where crowds have gathered. The streets are lined with people, and they're buzzing with anticipation, right? Something big was going to happen. News had been spreading throughout the entire holy city of this great honor that was coming their way. Someone of incredible significance was making their way there and would be here any minute. The crowd, as we would stand there with them, filled with this celebratory spirit of excitement and anticipation and maybe just a little bit of fear, maybe. I guess that's what we could call it. You know, that, that heaviness that sits deep inside you when, you know, some, somebody important is about to come into your view? You're going to be in the presence of somebody that you've never been in before, but you know they're an important person. Maybe your favorite athlete or celebrity or, you know, someone, whoever. You're not really afraid of them, but they're important. The, and this person that you're anxiously awaiting has this mystique or this power or prestige that you yourself don't possess. And your biology bears the weight of that gravity right there in your stomach. And so while you are excited, you have this little nervousness in you. 
And so while you're there with all of that going on and the gates fly open in Jerusalem, the crowd erupts with cheers because trumpets start to blast and they signal the presence of nobility. Shouts and chants begin to fill fill the streets from our lungs. Praise the king who brings peace on earth. This is a special occasion because it isn't often that Roman governors make their way to Jerusalem. They normally made their home in Caesarea a few miles out and only visited the holy city for special occasions or in times of unrest. While you're there in the crowd, you can feel and hear the pounding of parading feet marching and the earth sort of trembles beneath you. And that already deafening noise of a crowd just sort of cheering and milling about crescendos as he crosses the threshold of the city, mounted atop his giant war horse, surrounded by armed and armored soldiers, marching in step, carrying their shields and their spears and their, and their swords. Pontius Pilate has arrived in Jerusalem. On the other side of the city, a few kilometers outside, there's another procession that begins. It starts its descent down the Mount of Olives to the great city of Jerusalem. It's a considerably smaller crowd. They're still a few kilometers away from Jerusalem, but they can see it, all of it, from this elevated vantage point on top the Mount of Olives. There it is. It rests down Below, I wonder if they could hear what was going on down there. As we again imagine ourselves in this place, as we walk with Jesus down the path, we hear the gentle clopping of a colt's not yet mature hooves, accompanied by the shuffling of sandals. But other than that, it's quiet. There's a pit in our stomachs as well. This one might feel a little bit more like fear because we're not quite sure what's, what lies ahead of us. We have heard over and over again Jesus talking about coming here and that he was going to be betrayed and that he was going to be turned over to the authorities and he was going to be beaten and that he was going to be killed. And part of us anticipates the coming of this new king, this new era, this kingdom of God that he has talked so much about. And where else would it begin than here in Jerusalem? And yet something in us says, we don't fully know what we're walking into. And this quiet in which we walk serves only to magnify the anxiety in our hearts. But this wind blows through, this gentle breeze atop the mountain, through the trees, the olive trees there, which brings just enough smell of that fresh greenery that can mask our collective uncleanliness, let's say. But then we hear something up ahead. And we can't quite make it out, but it sounds a little bit like a crowd. And as we get closer to this little village that's on the path down the mountain, we see people gathered there. And we hear this murmuring and, 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 and 
cheering, this talking of anticipation. And as we come into view and we see them, they can see us. They begin to cheer and they begin to chant and they begin to sing as almost as if they've been waiting for us to arrive. As we get closer, we begin to see the cheering gets louder and that they begin to wave their coats, tattered and sweaty, some bland, some colorful, some obviously weathered, waving them in the air. And as we get even closer, we notice that they have begun to lie them onto the ground to make a carpet for us and for Jesus as if he were a king being welcomed into a capital. More and more, these people, as, they, as we pass by them, they're cheering and they're singing, they begin to join us in this little parade that we have started as we go down the mountain, and they begin to sing a familiar psalm that we recognize. Psalm 18, I believe it is. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And it doesn't take long for all of us to join in that singing. For the moment, that pit in our stomach is gone. Forgot it was even there. Because it's been replaced with rejoicing. For our king has come. It has been replaced with hope that we have so desperately needed. Our scripture for today is the tale of two entrances. One explicitly described, and one that is implicit. One of these is implied because the people living in the story knew all about it. Those in the first and second century, those readers, those people that were in the story that are being described, they knew so intimately what it was like to see a military procession come in to their town. They knew what it was like to see representatives of Rome walk through with all their intimidation and all their power and all their glory. They knew that intimately. It was not necessary for Luke to detail that. But it was necessary for him to detail the other entrance explicitly. Probably because it was relatively unknown at the time. It happened outside the city walls. This is something that's unique to Luke. The other gospel writers talk about it happening as they enter Jerusalem. Luke, for Luke, it takes place a few kilometers outside the city, atop the Mount of Olives. It probably wasn't a giant mass of people. It was probably a much smaller group. They were thinking maybe even like 10, 15, 20 people originally. Because if you think about it, if it was hundreds, maybe thousands of people like I tend to picture in my brain, cheering and chanting this new king coming into Jerusalem, a place that is pretty famous for its unrest and its conflict between the religious and Rome, don't you think Rome would have taken notice of that and put a stop to it pretty quickly? No, rather this is a much smaller group that comes through. Zealous nonetheless, though, hopeful nonetheless. But because it was small and relatively unknown, Luke wants to tell about it so that people can see the contrast between two kingdoms and two kings. And we for ourselves, as we enter this story, can feel the same 
we see this contrast between these kings and these kingdoms that they represent. Right? A contrast that serves to make crystal clear for us what those who have encountered Luke's story throughout the centuries has been made clear to them and what we have maybe suspected all along that Jesus is no ordinary king. We talk about kings and we talk about kingdoms in reference to Jesus and to God, but we have to get clear as Luke tells us that this is unlike any other king or any other kingdom that we know. It is a reality that that goes beyond our comprehension because it does not look like anything that we have ever seen before. And on Palm Sunday, each and every year, the Sunday before Easter, we are invited to remember the drama of this moment. Two entrances. Pilate enters on a mighty war horse, like most kings or, or, or leaders or rulers would do. Jesus enters on a young donkey, not quite as intimidating. A beast of burden, right, that, that does labor, that works. Pilate comes in the name of Caesar and of Rome. Jesus comes in the name of the Lord God and of heaven. Pilate is surrounded by chariots and soldiers with swords and spears and their shields held high. Jesus, surrounded by a ragtag crowd of disciples, waving sweaty cloaks in the air. Children, families gathered around singing. Each of these entrances tells a story. They're meant to. The reason Rome processes in the way Rome does is because Pilate wants to tell the story of Rome. They don't have to read it. All they have to do is show up. His procession is a show of force, of intimidation that's intended to inspire compliance through fear. The peace that Rome proclaims comes at the expense of people's lives. Because they believe in peace through victory, hence the soldiers that come through them. This means that this peace comes by killing any of those that don't agree to their terms of what peace is. If you don't like Rome and if you don't like our version of peace, we can do something about that. That's why it's peaceful. And that's what they show when they come through. It's the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And it promises something. But it doesn't like to tell you what it's going to cost because it comes at your expense. Jesus, on the other hand, his procession is also telling a story, but it's telling a different story. It's the story that precedes all things. It's the story that birthed the world, but has become more of a counter narrative because it's the story that's been forgotten. It's the story of God, his procession. Show, it shows a joy that is intended to inspire hope in people's lives again through faith that God has not forsaken them, God has not left them. In fact, God is with them and God is in control. The peace that Jesus proclaims will also come at a price, but it will come at his own expense. The peace Jesus promises comes not by taking, 
lives, but by giving his life away for the sake of others. Rome does what Rome does for the sake of Rome, but Jesus does what Jesus does for the sake of the world. Caesar's kingdom, just like the king, any other kingdom of the world, rules by fear and scarcity and promises peace by demanding submission to its ways. But God's kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, rules by faith and grace and promises peace through extravagant generosity. This is our king. And this is the kingdom into which we are invited, every one of us. And so the meaning of this day, Palm Sunday, becomes clear to us. There are two forces entering into Jerusalem. Just like two heavyweight boxers in a much-anticipated showdown making their way down the aisle to the ring. Lights and smoke fill the air. There's chants of joy and there are, there are cheers rising up from the crowds. They are accompanied by those closest to them. And they represent on them and with them the thing that gives them power, the thing that represents them best. These two powers, these two kingdoms, the kingdom of fear and the kingdom of hope are about to collide in the place of the temple. And for each and every one of us, as we read, we cannot help but be drawn to the, to the two kingdoms that are present in our lives as well. The kingdom of fear and the kingdom of hope. So each Sunday... As a crowd gathers in a space, it's like a little Palm Sunday, if you think about it. Each week we have come to this church with these two stories in our minds and on our hearts. We come with the knowledge of God and Christ, the joy and hope that is present and available there. We also come with the anxieties and the worries of the world, the demands on our lives, the things that speak to us, that whisper to us of hope and of promise of peace, right? And that, that it, it, it's just going to be this easy, and yet we have to give all of ourselves to it. It demands so much for, from us. And these two narratives, these two stories that are in our hearts, that are in our souls, compete with one another, and that is where we find ourselves day in and day out, and especially as we gather here. We, each week, have come to this church. You have found your seat here. For centuries, others like us have come to church as well, generation after generation. And probably for much the same reasons that we find ourselves here to do, which are just as varied. And you've probably come to this church for many of the same reasons that anyone goes to any church any day. We come because we have an expectation to meet God. We have an expectation that there is a promise to be fulfilled 
We come because we want to see friends and be seen by them. We might come out of habit because it's just what we've always done or maybe what our family has always done. And so we find ourselves here week after week. Maybe we've come to be entertained or inspired. We need to get filled up, right? Because it's been a long week. And so I just need this for me to be justified. Sometimes we come. Even those of us that in our secret heart, right? The one that we don't like to show everybody. The one that we don't like to reveal. The secret heart that reveals that we actually believe very little, and yet we believe it's maybe better to show up than to not show up. If you're like me, and even as a pastor, I have the opportunity from time to time to attend church and churches, and if you're like me, when you come to church, there's times when you do enjoy yourself, And there's times when you're bored stiff. Sometimes you find yourself reflecting and thinking long thoughts about yourself and your life and God. But then there's other times when you find your mind drifting toward the same anxieties and and daydreams that you would have anywhere else. Any other waiting room at any other dentist's office or DMV. And though all of those reasons might touch somebody here, yet we've all come crowded together in this place. And deep, I I believe this, deep beneath all of those lesser reasons that we might be here, all the lesser reasons that we have for doing so, for coming into this place, there is this deeper, more profound reason that we have crowded together, that we have gathered, anticipating something. And that reason is hope. That there is something deep within us, something that we might not even be aware of, that longs for something more, that wants to nurture something good, that wants to imagine a future That is better than the present, not just for myself, but for the world. A future so great that I might be even willing to relinquish my present in favor of that future. Leveraging my life for God's dream. We gather each week here and we find ourselves in the crowd with Jesus With all of the hope that Jesus can be for us what he has been for so many. A healer. A savior. A friend. We come to Jesus with the hope that he can be for others. Maybe even the entire world what he has been for us. And that we might even find ourselves partnering with him in that work. To establish this kingdom that he speaks about. This dream that he has for what the world should be and could be. On earth as it is in heaven, right? That we might find ourselves holding a basket with a modest amount of bread or fish in it. Feeding multitudes of people. 
a number of people that this amount of food has no business of feeding. And yet we find ourselves there. We find ourselves meeting the need of the sick and the poor, caring for the orphan and the widow, seeing people walk again, even seeing the dead resurrected to life. We come with that hope. We gather each week with two kingdoms vying for our attention and for our loyalty. Each promising us peace, but only one willing to give it freely as an act of grace. Each week we gather with the potential for realizing that all of long, all along we have been standing at the wrong parade. That we have placed our hope in things that promise us peace and security and safety and belonging and healing and a future, but seem to only demand things from us and take from us. We don't see much of that return. And each week we gather We have the opportunity to join in a new parade, one filled with hope that inspires in us faith and gives us peace and joy at its own expense. Palm Sunday marks the beginning of Holy Week, and what I hope for you is this, that we feel the hope and the excitement and the anticipation that is mentioned in these stories, that we notice the contrast between the two kingdoms that battle for our hearts and for our lives. And that we find ourselves standing in the parade of the one that promises to give that life away. And my hope is that as you go from this place, that the next time we see each other is not just next Sunday, but that we might find ourselves on both Thursday and Friday in a place of worship on our way to Easter, that we might journey with Jesus through these pivotal moments in his life, in our lives, and in the history of the world where we see Jesus celebrate the Passover with his closest disciples and where we we witness the cost that Jesus bears for our lives on Friday before we celebrate the hope that we are surprised by at Easter. You'll find those times and those dates in your bulletin, and I want you to mark those. Because I don't want us to get to the end of the week and feel like we've rushed through it or missed it. I want us to experience all along the way the fullness of God's character as given to us in Jesus. I'm going to end us with a word of prayer upstairs, whoever's hosting. (laughs) This is off script. I'm going to end us with a word of prayer. But this is my benediction. And I hope for all of us that we take as we go forward. That in our hearts, the two kingdoms that compete for our lives, that we find ourselves standing in the presence of the one willing to give his own for ourselves. And as we shout chants of praise and glory to that king, and we are invited into that kingdom, we find ourselves marching through the streets of life, sharing that same hope and same grace. Let me pray for us. God, as we go, we, we go in praise and honor of you, anticipating all that you have done and will do, not only in our lives here in the present, God, but for the future of this world. 
a world that we want to be a part of and that you have invited us into, God. May we hear your voice amidst all the noise in our life and may we trust your promise to transform. God, we pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.